I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. It's 8.30 on Thursday, September 13th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, hear from one group looking for answers following 16 inmate deaths in the month of August. Then, state narcotics officials are investigating a record-breaking marijuana operation in Jefferson Davis County. And in the book club, we'll hear about two sisters working to document the stories of Delta women. Find out why they call them real Southern women in a mythologized land. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A group of protesters says the Mississippi Department of Corrections isn't doing enough to explain the deaths of 16 inmates in their custody. The inmates all died in August at various facilities. About seven protesters held banners accusing Commissioner Policia Hall of being responsible for their deaths. One sign even used the word murderer. Attorney Adolfo Minka is the leader of the group. He talks with MPB's Desiree Frazier. Those are pretty strong words to accuse the commissioner of being a murderer. Um, It's a pretty strong thing where 16 people have died under your watch in one month alone, and you go in the media and say that these deaths are on par with the rate of deaths um, that's regularly with the MDOC. And if that is a true statement she made, that's a big problem in itself, that she would even go on record and say something like that. And then a couple of days ago, you have Governor Phil Bryant who comes out and says that, oh, this is just something that happens in uh, prisons. He, these are not his exact words, but what he, the gist of what he said is, well, people die in prison sometime, and it's just a part of the, this is just a part of the fallout of it, I guess, collateral damage or whatever, however he would put it. How would you like to see it handled? How would I like to see For one, I want these people to talk to these, uh, the family members of these people who have died in MDOC's custody. Because according to what has been reported, what these family members have said in the media, they have not even gotten any answers themselves. And according to what continues to be said from the MDOC standpoint, Ms. Hall, uh, they're saying that they won't know anything because for a while because the, the, the state medical examiner office has a backlog um, of autopsies that they have. The question marks are unacceptable. 
the people need answers. The people need uh, answers right now. And ultimately, institutions like the MDOC and other carceral institutions and other police state institutions, they ultimately, ultimately need to be abolished because they don't do the job that they claim to do. All they do is incapacitate people. They don't give people proper education and development while they're in these institutions. People are not receiving adequate health care in these institutions and a host of other problems that are represented um, in these institutions. The commissioner said that uh, she has called in the FBI to help investigate. What would you think if Frank James called in Jesse James to investigate the situation? You have to explain that statement. Right. Well, the criminal is not going to do a thorough investigation of another criminal institution. The FBI has been involved in violating the civil and human rights of poor and black people in this country since its founding. And the FBI is, is not an independent institution. Who would be in... They should call in the United Nations. They should call in the United Nations working group of experts, of people of African descent, to go into these prisons and do a thorough investigation. Adolfo Minka sharing his concerns with our Desiree Frazier. An attorney familiar with the conditions of prisons in Mississippi is Jody Owens of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Owens has been involved in legal actions against the Department of Corrections, including an ongoing suit involving the East Mississippi Correctional Facility. He tells Desiree Frazier his organization is looking into the August deaths. It's a horrible occurrence in Mississippi and sustain on NDOC's obligation to protect individuals from harm and a failure to, of that of the commissioner of Commissioner's Hall. Secondly, despite the misinformation about these uh, tragic loss of lives, we know that some of these incidents were certainly preventable, those that occurred through violence, through the failure to supervise. But for almost a decade now, uh, through our litigation, we have forecast and foreshadowed that this could happen to MDOC, primarily because of the lack of uh, medical and mental health treatment. Uh, MDOC has continued to have different private vendors provide this treatment. The Mississippians are paying, you know, tens of millions of dollars in taxpayer money to provide health care. And far too often, the health care is not substantive. It's not real. We have had thousands of clients who tell us that they're trying to get medical attention and help unsuccessfully. And when we see and hear of individuals passing away at the hospital, it's been our uh, results of our investigation that individuals are going to the hospital way too late. They're getting treatment for things uh, when the time has passed for that treatment to be effective. So while uh, the messaging might be from MDOC that these deaths are natural causes, well, they might be natural causes, but still natural causes are preventable if people are getting uh, regular medical care treatment as they're constitutionally uh, supposed to be receiving. Now, in your role as uh, an attorney who has litigated these cases, will you be looking at uh, bringing some type of litigation against the state regarding this? We certainly have, are conducting our own investigation and trying not to rush without the proper information. We have inquiries into the state that we are trying to get back. We are looking forward to getting the results of the autopsies and the investigation of all of these deaths. At that point in time, we will continue to hold MDOC accountable. Uh, we currently are litigating um, the East Mississippi lawsuit. Judge Barber issued a ruling 
uh, just within the last 30 days that affords us the opportunity to once again go back into the facility with our experts and determine what type of medical and mental health care individuals are receiving, and we'll use that information accordingly to continue to ask for public safety and the well-being and, and safety of the individuals in MDOC's custody. And what is that issue at East Mississippi? Well, it continues to be uh, a lack of all these things that we're seeing now, lack of failure to protect medical and mental health treatment. Uh, these issues certainly can advance someone's death if they're not uh, getting the services they need. So we think these deaths uh, have a certain connectivity uh, to the, the litigation that we filed in that lawsuit and previous lawsuits about the failure to have adequate security to ascertain the problems that are obviously going to be in the prison. Now, far too often individuals are trying to go to hospitals, trying to get treatment, and they're told, well, we can't pay for that. Uh, they won't send our clients to the hospital until the last minute. And unfortunately, it's that last minute is too late often. One issue, uh, we know that there is a backlog at the state examiner's office. So getting uh, autopsies back in a timely manner is going to be tough to begin to look at those results. Yeah, unfortunately, we are still having issues in that department. But what's interesting is that the commissioner hall uh, was able to come out without autopsies being complete and to suggest that people were dying of cancer. I think the governor has as well. It's premature uh, for people to do so to deflect when usually the status quo is you can't get any information from MDOC. For them to take that position, I think, is a reverse in the pattern and a, and a desire to cover up what actually might have occurred. Jody Owens with the Southern Poverty Law Center. Thank you so much for speaking with us about this issue. You're welcome. Take care. Pelicia Hall is commissioner of the Mississippi Department of Transportation. She has said the department believes the majority of the deaths are from natural causes in that they include cancer, coronary, and other medical conditions. She's asked the FBI and the State Department of Public Safety to investigate the cases. Governor Phil Bryant recently voiced his reaction to the August deaths. He said every death is taken seriously, but he did not suspect wrongdoing on the part of the department. I don't think there's any conspiracy. I don't think there's any common thread. It is just a fact of life that people are going to pass away. We're going to do everything that we can to, to find out what's going on with each and every one of them. To stay on top of this issue and others here on Mississippi Edition, follow MPB News on Twitter and Facebook. You can also subscribe to podcasts of our programs in your favorite podcasting app. Coming up, state narcotics officials are investigating a record-breaking marijuana operation in Jefferson Davis County. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. I've got warts, and I wanted to know, is there anything other than freezing them off and then keeping them covered that can be done? All warts are caused by a viral infection. The most common one are the plain or flat warts that you find, and you can find those most commonly on the hands or feet. There's not really a way to prevent those on the body, per se, that you just sort of have to treat those. Most of the time, if you do something to that wart surface, what you're doing is you're getting rid of that tissue, but you're also stimulating the immune system in that area to put up a fight against those viral particles there. It's going to be one of those things that you just, when they pop up, you deal with them. But the dermatologists are the experts on that. 
For more health tips and medical information, listen to Southern Remedy each weekday morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi narcotics officials are still investigating the largest marijuana operation ever uncovered in the state. Seven plots of marijuana plants were discovered this week in a heavily wooded area of Jefferson Davis County in South Mississippi. John Dowdy is director of the State Bureau of Narcotics. He tells MPB's Ezra Wall more about the investigation and how they found the record-breaking drug operation. Uh, We were conducting uh, a surveillance operation uh, through uh, air support. Uh, We had uh, some specific information uh, about some marijuana grows, again, in in Jeff Davis County. Uh, These fields were not actually out in the open. They were uh, very concealed in a very heavily wooded area. Uh, the only way that you can discover these particular type uh, grows is through uh, aerial uh, surveillance, and that's how we ended up finding them Monday afternoon. The article I read uh, said there were seven plots. How how big is each plot? What kind of total uh, area are we are we talking about? I think total, you probably had about fifteen acres, uh, maybe maybe twenty, uh, but it was seven separate uh, contiguous plots, two on one side of the road and then you had five additional plots on the other side of the road. Each of the plots was divided by a small wood line, uh, so they were not contiguous all the way through. And, um, it, you know, it was um, 70, just shy of 70,000 plants is what we ended up with for the total. Wow. That seems like a lot. In, in the scope of it, how big of an operation is that? Uh, massive. It, it's uh by far the largest uh, marijuana uh, grow operation we've ever uncovered in Mississippi. Uh, last year, we uh, found another grow operation in Jeff Davis County, about almost 22,000 plants, which was the largest. Uh, this dwarfed uh, the one we found last year. In terms of uh, dollar value, I've seen some figures floating around. Is How, how do you assess that? Is there, a, is there a number that you can put on that at this point? Yeah, we estimate it's between 65 and 70 million dollars worth of marijuana um you know basically you you look at it by the size and and weight of the marijuana that goes off the plant but uh, a fair estimate would be about 65 to 70 million dollars worth of marijuana so this is a far cry from uh from some guy with a couple of pot plants in his uh in his garage oh absolutely i mean this was a professional grow uh, they had watering systems throughout uh, for irrigation. Uh, we found uh, on the edge of some of the fields uh, living quarters, makeshift tents, uh, where individuals were out there tending to uh, the marijuana. Uh, we found pesticides. We found 600 pounds of triple 13 uh, fertilizer. And um, they also had electricity run from uh, a residence nearby going out to uh, one of the campsites. How many arrests have been made so far in this uh, process? Uh, right now, uh, we've only taken one person into custody. We've executed four search warrants. We expect that there will be uh, a couple of other people potentially taken into custody within the next couple of days, and we're just going to continue to uh, run with the investigation. When we uncovered the marijuana operation last year, uh, you know, no one was on site. Uh, it was even more remote than this particular location. And, um, you know, we 
we'd started our investigation just doing good old-fashioned police work and and uh, we had a substantial number of leads uh, we have identified a couple of people uh, involved with last year's grow uh, believe that that individual those individuals are also connected to this year's grow I think ultimately uh, what we're going to find out through the investigation is this is going to be tied back to a Mexican cartel what about property owners I've, I've heard people speculate as to how something like this uh, could happen on someone's property without their having any knowledge of it are, are property owners suspected to be involved in this at all I really wouldn't really don't need to comment on that at this point about this particular grow operation it's one of those kind of situations where last year uh, the landowner was an absentee landowner did not live there um, had, I think had inherited the property never went down to it really to visit or anything like that this year the circumstances are a little different and we'll see how the investigation plays out in terms of uh, penalties for a thing like this uh, an operation on this scope I mean you, you've got to be looking at some some pretty major consequences yeah and it, you know the the potential for jail time on this quantity of marijuana is going to be very substantial uh, we have actually been working uh, we were working this investigation with DEA um, I have had conversations with uh, uh, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Mississippi, Mike Hurst, uh, there is a good possibility that ultimately uh, this case will be taken through the federal court system and uh, under the sentencing guidelines uh, based on the quantity of marijuana that we have, it you know, it would result in a very substantial uh, amount, of, amount of jail time for some someone or some people. All right. Well, John Dowdy is the director of the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. Director Dowdy, thank you very much for uh, talking with me today. You bet, Ezra. Thank you. Anytime. Coming up in the book club, we'll hear about two sisters working to document the stories of Delta women. Find out why they call them real Southern women in a mythologized land. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Jeremy Hobson. President Trump campaigned on a pledge to keep jobs in the U.S. Brian Bossom voted for Trump, but his company still left Indiana. They seen an opportunity to increase their profit. They could move to Mexico and make $15 million more, all in labor cost. We'll broadcast from Indianapolis next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on MBB Think Radio. Get your MPB car tag anytime. It doesn't even have to be up for renewal. Simply go to your county office to sign up. When you get an MPB car tag, a portion of the fee helps MPB continue to educate, inform, and entertain Mississippians. For details, visit mpbonline.org slash cartag. We'll see you on the road. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. What does it mean to be from somewhere? That's one of the questions posed in the new book, Realizing Our Place, Real Southern Women in a Mythologized Land. Sisters and Mississippi Delta natives Catherine Egley-Wagoner and Laura Egley-Taylor are behind the project. They profile other Delta women. In this week's book club, Catherine Egley-Wagoner talks about meeting with such different women with so much in common. 
that was one of my interest was, was to try to get a cross-section of interviewees representing different races. So, for example, not just black and white women, but Lebanese, Chinese-American, Italian-American. You know, the Delta has an interesting combination of people although lots of times outsiders only think of the Deltas in terms of black and white. And so we were trying to get more women in those other uh, races and ethnicities. We also wanted to get a cross-section of women across socioeconomic classes and tried to, although it was much more delicate, to get different um, sexual orientations to try to understand how all of these women saw themselves as Southern and the extent to which the mythologies of Southern womanhood played a role in that identity formation. What led you to the Mississippi Delta? Why is that the focus of the book? Two reasons. One is that I grew up there, moved there when I was eight years old, and left when I went to graduate school in the mid-'80s. So I was very familiar with the region. And I'm also interested because many historians and cultural studies people have labeled it as the most southern place on earth, or the south on steroids. And I see it as a nice sort of contained area, both in terms of literature and geography. And if I was interested in how people identify as southern, I thought this is a, a going to the place that's called the most southern place on earth might be a good place to do that. As you interviewed people or as you prepared to interview people, did you ask them all the same questions? Did you ask them a story about their life? Was it the same for each one? Yes. We had a, uh, I had an interview script, but, of course, we would deviate at times. Each interview was about an hour and a half to two hours. I also used an interesting strategy. I wanted them to talk about the mythologies of Southern womanhood. So I had photographs that I put on cards and these were photographs of uh, popular cultural representations of Southern womanhood. So like Dolly Parton, Designing Women, Coretta Scott King, Oprah Winfrey, Rosa Parks. We had all of these individual photographs, and I would lay them on the table and ask the woman, do any of these resonate with you? What do you think about these? Do you identify with any of these? And in that conversation starter, the women would say, oh, yes, you know, this person, and they'd point to one and say, this person is really Southern. This person I can't relate to at all. And it was a way to have them talking about the extent to which they identify as Southern and how these sort of mythologies play a role without just asking them outright. And they were great conversation starters. Your sister, Laura, is the photographer for the book, and there's some wonderful pictures. How did you decide how much text versus how many photographs and how you would go yes. about that? Well, this is Laura's gift. She's got an eye for photography. We always knew that we wanted to have photographs not of the women but of place because if our question is about, you know, how does place, affect the way you identify. We wanted to have photographs of that. And we also wanted it to be not just an academic book, which I've written before, and I'm, I'm used to writing to academic audiences, but we wanted it to appeal to general readership as well. And we knew that you can't talk about the Delta without some of the aesthetics that play such an important role. So Laura took tons and tons of photographs, and then when it came time for the book, 
we just made a pitch to the press saying, can we have these collages at the beginning of each chapter? And they said yes. The title, Realizing Our Place, Mm -hmm. can be taken one way, Mm -hmm. but it seems that you would want to take it the other way. (laughs) Literally realizing your place in your location. I wanted to put the real part in brackets. And the publishers didn't like that idea. They thought it made it look too academic. My driving question was, what does it mean to be a woman in the South that's so highly mythologized? How are you real when you're living in a land of legend? I think these women negotiate powerful mythologies in very determined and resourceful ways. So they're not just embracing myths or rejecting them, but they're creating or incorporating aspects of them. And so they're making themselves sort of real in a highly mythologized land. I liked the the play on the words realizing and place. That's what I liked about the title. Catherine Egley Wagner with her sister Laura Egley Taylor are the authors of Realizing Our Place, Real Southern Women in a Mythologized Land. Thank you so much, Catherine. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10 o'clock, it's MPB's brand new show, AutoCorrect. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB public media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. MPB News is leading the way, covering stories that matter to Mississippians with five first-place awards from the Associated Press, including breaking news, radio achievement, and public affairs reporting. Your source for a deeper look at today's top story is MPB News.